Let's get a mute, everybody. If people, people will join. People will join. All right. We're in the ninth chapter of Yechezkel, uh, verse 2. And I'll read the verse to you. Uh, first of all, the uh, dedication. The shir is Ilun Yishmosam, Ephraim Shmob, and Avramaria Cohen, and Chaya Tova Bas, Eliezer Mendel HaKohen. And chapter 9, verse 2. Uh, this chapter describes God, so to speak, leaving the environs of Yushalayim uh, before the destruction of the temple. And uh, this is a vision that Yefeskel is seeing. It's five years before the actual uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that he's seeing an allegorical version of it five years before it happens. And this is what happened. And six men coming through the upper gate in the north, uh, towards the north, which is the area of destruction, which we've discussed many times. Uh, each man had a sledgehammer in his hand. Among them was a man clothed in white linen. He had a scribe's uh, ledger in his belt. And they came and stood behind the, beside the copper altar inside the base of Mikdush. Now, we've had two opinions about who these six individuals or seven individuals are. We had the opinion of the Gemara. Uh, who said these uh, particular individuals represented the different types of fury that God had against the Jews of Yushalayim, we have, uh, which the uh, Abarbanel dismissed the Gemara. He says, how can it be that you need six angels with six uh, synonyms attached to their names, fury, anger, wrath, aggression, uh, when the reality is they're all the same thing? What do you need six, six angels with six different names for? And then we had an opinion uh, from the Medrash, <clears throat> which was the last thing we did, that there weren't seven people here, there were six. And five of them were here, to de- each one was there to destroy a, a particular um, group of people inside Yerushalayim. Uh, one was there to kill the old men, one was there to kill the young men. As the verses say later on, one was there to kill the young women, one was there to kill the children, and one was there to kill the older women. And so you had five angels, each with a particular task, each with a particular group of people to to kill. And the sixth guy was a guy dressed in white, and he was keeping score, and he was directing who should be killed. And he was there to, as we'll see shortly, he was there to uh, express some type of mercy that some some of the people, mainly the, the righteous, should be saved, and that's what we got up to. And the Ram, the Abarbanel, as I mentioned right at the end of last the last year, he doesn't like this explanation either. And now he tells us why he doesn't like the explanation of the Gemara, and he doesn't like the explanation of the Medrash. And again, just to reiterate. The Abarbanel is not frightened of taking on a Gemara. He's not frightened of taking on a Medrash. 
if he's sure what it, what he, what he's talking about, he's quite happy to take them on. He writes as follows. This, this understanding of the Medrash, again, that there were six angels here and, and five of them had a uh, responsibility to kill one particular, each particular group, each one had a responsibility to kill a particular group. And there was, you know, uh, the sixth guy there was to keep score and to direct people, uh, direct the other five angels to their particular categories and to seek mercy for uh, the righteous. He says it's ain lomakom. It's nonsense. Ki azokem rabocho rabsula tafanoshim kulon nergin. He says the reality is the old men, the young men, the maidens, the virgins, the children, and the older women. Um, uh, all these five groups were destined to die anyway, and they're going to die at the hands of the Babylonians. Like, there's no need. Um, you know, the Babylonians are going to kill all these people. There's no need to, to, uh, try and, uh, explain this that uh, a group of angels are coming to, uh, destroy the city when the reality is the, the angels, we're talking five years hence, right? This vision is taking place five years before the temple is actually destroyed. And we know it's actually destroyed by the Babylonians. So he says this idea that angels coming into the city uh, to destroy the city, uh, whether they're, they're angels of, of anger and wrath and, and fury and all this, which the Gemara and Shabbos says, or what the Medrash says, they're angels that are designed um, with a specific task in mind to kill particular categories of people. It's all nonsense because the reality is that the Babylonians are going to kill everybody and not angels. Um, and so he says that, uh, says about the Babylonians, the reality was that the, the reality is that these six angels, these six destroyers and the seventh man, seventh man that's dressed in white linen, is not referring to any Babylonians entering the city to cause destruction, as the Radak said, which we discussed last week, nor are the six angels here in ex- uh, 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 as expressions of different type of God's anger, as the Gomorrah implies, nor are they there, um, as the Medrash implies, with uh, uh, there is in individual uh, angels with individual instructions to kill specific groups as the Medrash implies. So what is this verse all about? So Lebabanel says, I'll tell you what's it all about. It's all a marshal. It's all a parable. Nothing's going on here. It's designed to show Yechezkel what's going to happen in stark terms. These destructive angels, these destroyers in this verse, they're just a parable. A marshal, a euphemism. L'shisha sibos mashchisom shechai b'chur churban yerushalayim. They're here to hint at the six reasons why the city of Yerushalayim and the base of Midrash are going to be destroyed. Ukavayadata, and I presume you understand. Should stode ha'olam shisha. There are six directions in the physical world. Malo mata up and down. Ponim v'achar, front and back, yomim us, yomin usmol, right and left. V'omno, hamale, he says, these six directions are referencing the six crimes, the six abeiris, the six transgressions that are going to be 
the cause of the destruction of Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, and the base of Migdosh. And I'll explain to you how this works. And that's what the six angels are. But Omnon Hamala, first, the destruction that comes from above. Shehoyesibas hachurban hicharon Hashem. What comes from above, the, of the six directions that we just discussed, the first one is above. But Omnon Hamala, the destruction that comes from above, Shehoyesibas hachurban hicharon Hashem. Above is a reminder of the reason why destruction is coming from heaven, which is the result of God's fury and anger leveled at the Jewish people for centuries of the desertion of the Torah. And it also hints at the fire that God sent down from heaven to burn the base of Mikdash. So the first, the first direction here we're talking about is from above. That's the first angel. It's all a, a hint. It's all a remez. It's all a marshal. The first angel represents destruction that's coming from above for angering God. The Hamata. And what about below? Angel number two. This is a reminder that the reason why the destruction is coming from below is directly related to the holiness, the Kedushas Yerushalayim, the holiness of Jerusalem. And it's directly related uh, to the city of Jerusalem, which is supposed to be a holy city, which is situated below in the physical world, a city that could and would not tolerate the pagan abominations anymore. As it says in Vayikra, the Posuk in Vayikra says, Vahoretz Ezkar, I, God, will remember the land. Vahoretz Te Ozev Mehem, and the land will rid itself of them, of them meaning the Jewish people. And so here you have the first two angels. The first angel is to remind you of destruction that's coming from above for angering God and pagan, the paganism that they did and uh, the adultery and everything else that was going on in Yerushalayim to anger God and the desertion of the Torah. The second angel is a representation of what happened in the physical world below, that that Yerushalayim was supposed to be a place of holiness, and they turned it into a place of abomination. And as the Torah says, when that happens, the land itself will rid them, will rid itself of the people. And now we come to angels three and four. There's a destruction coming from front and back. And if you want to know where the destruction is coming from front and back, you only have to go back to the fourth and final vision in chapter eight, where we saw 25 Jewish pagans inside the base of Migdosh with their faces to the east, to the front, while they worshipped the sun, and they showed their backsides. Uh, to the Kodesh Kadoshin, to the Holy of Holies, their back 
as they defecated inside the base of Migdosh. So that is front and back. So the Avodah Zora that was done in the base of Migdosh, bracing the front and worshipping the sun, and sticking your backside to the Kodesh Kadoshim while defecating on the floor of the base of Migdosh. That's angel three and four. But Omnam Hayamin Vasmol. Angel five and angel six represent left and right. And also Sibus Lachorban Hoya. There was a reason for dis- destruction coming from the left and from the right. Hayamin Kineged Hakatorah Shahu Makteris Lavo Dezora Biyadehem Kumosha Omar Veish Maktarto Biodo. Angel five is a reminder of the reason why the destruction is coming from the right. Destruction that comes from the right refers to Yechezkel's second vision in chapter 8. And Yechezkel saw a room full of Jewish pagans, together with the Sanhedrin, offering incense to a vast array of carvings and statues and various other idols painted and drawn over all over the walls and floor of a secret chamber inside the base of Migdosh. And that anything, any transgressions that are related to man sinning against God are described as coming from the right. Uh, we know from the Torah, Yemin Hashem Osachoyel, Yemin Hashem Tirat Oyev. The right hand of God crushes his enemies. And also, remember the allusion to the Kodesh Kadoshim. In the Holy of Holies, which we had in chapters 1 and 3, where the menorah was to the right of the Kodesh Kadoshim. The menorah on the right is there to signify man's relationship with God and the spiritual light of a Torah way of life. When that is, when that connection is broken, destruction comes from the right. So that is Ben Odom Lamoko, the destruction that's coming from the right is the breakdown in the relationship between man, uh, the Jews of Yerushalayim, and God. The Hasmol, and what about the left? The destruction that comes from the left, the the sixth and final angel. Angel six is a reminder of the reason why destruction is coming from the left and refers to other non-pagan sins that were endemic in the final years of the Beit HaMikdosh. Theft and corruption. Because Averus, transgressions that are related to man sinning against other men, are described as coming from the left. And remember again, the allusion to the Kodesh Kadoshim, where the showbread table was to the left of the Kodesh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies signifying man's obsession with the physical and the material world. When that obsession creates corrupt, corruption, theft, and extortion, then destruction will come from that direction as well, from the left. So that the six men that Yechezkel sees here are an allegory to the reason, the six reasons that the destruction is coming from all six directions that they uh, of the universe. That from all all six directions of creation, 
that uh, destruction will be coming upon the Jewish people in Yerushalayim and the base of Mikdash. Um, and those are the six directions. These are the six, six angels that um, Yechezkel is being shown here. They represent these six directions. So that the six men that Yechezkel sees here are in a, an, an allegory to the destruction that is coming uh, in, in, from six directions in five years' time. And the six men Yechezkel sees are coming, each coming from six different directions, uh, representing the six directions and the six reasons for the destruction. And the reason that they appear to be coming from the upper gate that faces the north, that's what it says, Mufne Sofona, they appear all to be coming from the gate that faces north, is because the north is the, the direction from which all destruction comes. As the first chapter in Yechezkel describes, Chapter 1, verse 4, And there was a mighty storm, uh, coming from the north, which was the beginning of Yechezkel's uh, vision of God's chariot leaving Yerushalayim as Yerushalayim is destroyed. So that that is the, uh, the, the Barabinel says that is what's going on here. There aren't six, six angels, no such thing, no not six angels. What Yechezkel is seeing is an allegory about the dis- dis- destruction itself and the reasons for it. The ish kli mapotzo mashchiso biyodo. Each man, each angel, had a particular destructive weapon in his hand. Ha'omnon nofisha novilo. It seems that Yechezkel um, did not resent or question this vision of the six destroyers. He makes no comment, as if he's um, as if he's quite happy to see it. And he makes no no uh, complaint to God. Kamosha hits from Avram. Unlike Avram, who said regarding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Amorah, by Yigash Avram, by Yoma, Ha'aftispet Tzadik in Russia. Avram asked God, as when God was about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he said to God, will you destroy even the righteous and the wicked? This, and the reason why Yechezkel wasn't put off, like Avram Ovinu was, like uh, you expect Yechezkel to complain at this point. He's seeing six angels uh, on six missions and six reasons why it seems everyone inside Yerushalayim is going to be killed and he didn't object like Abram Avinu objected and the reason said says the Abavanel is because God showed him a seventh man in the middle of the six destroyers dressed in white linen indicating the cleanliness, cleanliness and purity of the action of the destroyers. In other words, the, there's a man there, an overseer, like uh, the angel. There is one angel there. Seems it's either Gabriel or Michal. We'll see in a minute which, who it is. He's keeping score 
but it's divine judgment. And the fact that he's wearing white clothes is indicative of the mission of these angels and the reasons for the destruction of Yushalayim are clean and pure reasons. Shehumora al hanekiyos v'alatahara. And that's why Yecheskel didn't complain. He had nothing to complain about. The keses asofa banosno. And this man, this seventh angel, carried a scribe's uh, ledger in his belt. Remez lemishpat ha'olahi sheyiyeh b'masahu. Indicating that he was recording God's true divine judgments in the actions of the destroyers and in the actions that are going to take place in the destruction of Yushalayim. So that is the Ababanel's take here. This is all the Moshe. Remember, we're five years from the destruction, and Yechezkel is just being shown like a um, imagery that portrays what's going to happen. He's not going to actually see, he's never going to actually see the Babylonians killing anybody in Yerushalayim. It's all done through allegory, it's all done through imagery, and it's all done through dream and vision. So, uh, says the Abba now, there weren't really six angels, maybe there was one angel, which is why Yechezkel didn't complain, who was overseeing the uh, destruction of Yerushalayim as it took place. But again, it's not for five years' time. And Yechezkel didn't complain. That's the Ababanel's take on it. Um, the next thing we need to discuss is this guy in the middle, this seventh guy. Now, the Ababanel has told us that for, for sure, these six angels, they're not real angels. There's no, there's no angels here. This is just an alleg- allegory and imagery of destruction and the reasons for destruction. He'll give a, he'll give another explanation a bit later on that we won't see it today, but he'll give a second understanding of who these six, uh, who these six or seven, uh, angels are, um, later on in the chapter, uh, another, but it's also another allegory. But then the, the Posik says, this, this, there's a strange, a stranger in the camp. The guy dressed in white linen. Who exactly is this? It says, There was one man or one angel who was clothed in white linen with a scribe's uh, ledger on his belt. And up until now, we've assumed that this was the angel Gabriel. Uh, most of the comment- commentaries point out that this is Gabriel, uh, and uh, the redact brings a proof for it that uh, the guy in the white linen is Gabriel. He, this is the redact. He says, "Rabbi Seinu Zal Pirushu, or Rabbi said, Ze Gabriel, Behem Omruki Gabriel Malach Shel Eish Lefishahoyu Hazorek Ha'Eish Alohir." He was the one responsible when. Not literally to pour the fire over the city, but so to speak, to put the idea in the minds of the Babylonians to destroy the city with fire. And uh, so this is the allegory here uh, of the guy in the white linen, the guy that's going to be causing uh, the overseer of the mayhem. It should be Gabriel. And he says, we see this in another place as well. This is exactly what Daniel saw. Um he says this sits very well with Daniel's description of his encounter with Gabriel. He says, and he quotes the Psukim from Daniel in chapter 10, verse, so I say, this is Daniel speaking, 
I lifted my eyes where I and I saw the Hinei Ishechod Lavush Badim. I saw this man clad in white linen. Remember, Daniel and Yecheskel are compatriots, so to speak. They live at the same time. They're both living in Babylonia. They've got very, very similar histories. It's, we'll see later whether they were, they were close, close friends or not. That will be later on in the book. But uh, their life, their lives were uh, parallel to each other. So he says, Doniel says, I lifted my eyes and I saw and there was this man again, same guy, uh, dressed in white linen, upos. And this time when I saw him, says Daniel, he had a, a belt of gold studded with jewels. Ugviyoso Katarshish. And his body was like uh, shining. Uponav Kamara Barok. And his face was had the appearance of lightning. Kalapide Eish. Like firebrands. Uzarosov Umargolosov Kainachoshes Kolol. And his arms and his legs were like the appearance of finely shined copper. The cold Dvorov Kakol Hamon. And the sound of his voice was like the sound of a huge crowd. And he said that uh, that is Daniel's description of Gabriel. And he said the very the, the, the very fact that the both both Yechezkel and Daniel, two contemporaries living in Babylonia, uh, Daniel's describing Gabriel as wearing the white uh, linen robes. So he says here's a, a proof to all the opinions that uh, this is Gabriel, the seventh guy here, dressed in white, carrying the uh, the ledger. Writing everything down, that's Gavriel as well, overseeing the destruction. And that's how it will be in five years' time, that Gavriel will be the overseer of the destruction. There is a, a, a dissenting voice, however, uh, who says it's not, it's not the, the guy, the seventh guy here dressed in white linen, it's not Gavriel. Gavriel being the angel of destruction. Rabbeinu Bachai says, not, not true. He says, uh, this is his commentary in Bayikra. Rabbeinu Bachai writes in Bayikra. Uh, chapter 16, verse 4, where the uh, Torah there is discussing the garments worn by the Kohen Godol. He says the garments worn in this world, down here on earth, in the physical world by a Kohen Godol, symbolize those worn in the celestial regions, which are Kodosh, in the holy air, the highest uh, regions of the spiritual world which are kodosh, which are holy, spiritually holy, of those regions in the heaven, we are told that only one angel can be present. And that is the archangel Michoel, who is dressed in linen, white linen garments, as described by Yecheskel, the Ishechod Besochom Lovush Badim. So he says, this is the guy here in Yerushalayim carrying the, uh, carrying the clipboard, uh, and the ledger and the pen, that's not uh, Gabriel. Gabriel's not at, at, at that level. Michael, this is Michael. Omad Al-Ha'am. He is the angel of Israel, and he stands at the highest point in the spiritual realm. Um, and uh, so so that's a, a dissenting voice. It seems there's a question here. Is there a question here? No, no question here. Just Mute everybody. Okay. Okay. 
Everyone with me so far? Is everyone everyone with the uh, everyone with the picture so far? This allegory. Okay. Then the verse says right at the end, Vayavo Vayamdu Eitzel Mizbach Hanachoshes, that these angels, uh, uh, these um, euphemistic angels, these allegorical angels, the seven of them, they came and stood next to the copper altar. Uh, the destroyers came and stood next to the copper altar. Just one problem with that statement, which proves, uh, I would say, beyond all reasonable doubt, there was no copper altar. There was no copper altar in the first place of Migdosh. Um, there was no copper altar since the time of the Mishkan in the desert. Even though in the description of the construction of the first temple, the first base of Migdosh, it actually says in Malachim, and the copper altar that was in front of God, by uh, by Shlomo brought it near uh, inside the base of Mikdosh, uh, between the altar, the golden altar, and uh, the Kodesh, the Kodesh Kodoshim, and he placed it on the side of the altar to the north. So that's what it says in Melochim. But Rashi and all the commentators say that it's impossible to say that this was the copper altar that Moshe made because the copper altar that Moshe made in the desert was hidden. He's, and Rashi says it's also impossible to say that, that, that this uh, was the stone altar that Shlomo made, and he called it a copper altar, um, um, because that that also doesn't make any sense. So Rashi says, "I have this is Rashi in in the Book of Malachim. I have no way to explain what these words mean." Mizbeach and the copper altar. Um, the only thing I can think of, said Rashi, is it's referring to the copper basin. And the, the bases of copper, which were accessories to the altar and stood near the altar itself. And, but it can't possibly be a copper altar because there was no copper altar. There was one in the desert, but when they came into the land of Israel, it either got lost or it was hidden and nobody knew where it was. And that was the end of that. Uh, and similarly, uh, the Gomorrah, the Gomorrah and Shabbos that we'll be dealing a lot with, the Gomorrah and Shabbos, uh, also quotes this posuk, and it says, The destroying angels came and stood next to the copper altar. Says the, asked the Gomorrah, what are you talking about? The copper altar didn't exist. And um, so the Gomorrah answers, uh, God said to the destroyers, begin your work from the place where they recite songs in front of me. Uh, and says the Gemara, what the Mizbech Hazav, Mizbech Hazav, doesn't refer to a Mizbech, a copper altar, that uh, it's re- it's uh, referring to the place where the music, the copper musical instruments were kept, where the Levim would start the songs every day in the base of Migdash. Um, and uh, the Gemara makes the point, or it implies the point, implies the, implies the idea that uh, Rashi might be right as well, that the copper basins near the altar 
and the place where the copper musical instruments were stored right near the golden altar. So um, it can't be, this is a, one of the proofs that this is really an allegory because there was no copper altar. And as far as the above and else concerned, there was no real angels. Maybe the seventh man in white linen. So he was an angel, but he's overseeing the destruction, uh, the destruction that's coming up. But there are no real angels here. And there's no real copper altar here. And what Yechezkel is seeing is a mirage, is a vision, is a allegory, is a a made up, um, uh, almost like a um, animation of what is going to happen in five years time um, as the destruction of the base of Mikdash unfolds. Something that would take a long period of time, but as Yechezkel is seeing it as a vision, it's taking a very short period of time. So that is the start of the story. And now, uh, the, 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 the prophet takes you, uh, so to speak, uh, slightly tangentially to tell you what happened as the six or seven angels in this allegory approached the Mizbeach, which doesn't exist, or approached the central point of the base of Migdosh or the entrance to the base of Migdosh. No one's really sure. Where, where Yechezkel is seeing this from. But what Yechezkel does see, Ukavod Elohei Yisrael, this is verse 3, Ukavod Elohei Yisrael, Nale Me'el HaKruv HaSher Hoya Olof. At this point, as the destroyers came inside Yerushalayim, either outside the base of Migdosh or inside the base of Migdosh, the presence of God, the glory of God, lifted itself up, Me'el HaKruv, uh, from its resting place on the Krub or on the Krubim, Asher Hoyorlov, where it had been, where it had been for, well, it had been on the Krub for, you can work it out, from the time of, um, um, they were in the desert. You're talking about 850 years, and God's presence lifted up off the Krub, Asher Hoyorlov, where it had been resting, El Hamiftan, and it moved to the threshold, the entrance of the Kodesh Kadoshim. And at that point, as God started to leave the base of Migdosh, he called out to this particular angel, the one that's probably does exist, um, in the, in the imagery, the man clothed in white linen, uh, who's got this ledger strapped to his waist. And so exactly what's going on here, God leaving. So the Pesach says, Again, the, God's presence has rested on the Krub since the first Krubim were built by Moshe Rabbeinu, or built by Betzalel in the desert. They left, they were in the desert. Um, uh, you're talking about, uh, they, the end of the desert experience was 1273. So this is 423. So it's 850 years later. So for the first time, God's presence has left the, its place on the Krubim, on the cherubs, which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the Kodesh Kadoshim. Yechezkel sees the start of this process of God's presence departing the temple. 
and it's a longish process. As you can imagine, after 850 years, God's not not that keen to leave. Um, and it's a process that's described in the Gemara. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah and Daflam Aleph describes what God did. The Gemara says, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Idi, Omar Rabbi Yehuda Bar Idi, Omar Rabbi Yochanan. But God's presence, I'll, I'll summarize the Gemara, paraphrase the Gemara, otherwise we'll be here for a long time. That the divine presence, God's honor, God's shechina, God's presence left, would departed from the base of Migdosh and from Israel, traveling from one place to another in 10 journeys. It left the base of Migdosh and, and Eretz Israel, the whole, the land of Israel in 10 stages at the time of the destruction of the first temple, first base of Migdosh. And the Gemara there elaborates what the 10 journeys were. It went from the Kaporas, which uh, the Ark cover, to the Kruvim, uh, where it's some, something that it appears from this verse that Yechezkel did not see. But that's where God's presence has always been, always been on the Ark cover, uh, on the Kruvim. And it moved from one Kruv to the other here. Uh, and uh, once it had m- moved from one Cherub, cherub Kruv, to the other, um, uh, and uh, from there, it moved to the Miftan, which we saw in this posset, to the threshold of the Kodesh Kadoshim. Uh, as our posset says, that moved to the threshold of the courtyard of the Kodesh Kadoshim, and then it moved from the courtyard to the altar, uh, the Mizbeach, and from the Mizbeach to the roof, the gag, the roof of the Mizbeach, of the base of Mikdosh, and from the wall, roof, to the wall of the Har Habayis, to the wall uh, around the Temple Mount, which could mean the Kotel, and, and from the wall, in, it, God's presence left the base of Mikdosh entirely and went inside the city of Yushalayim, and from the city of Yushalayim, it traveled to the mountains close to Yushalayim, and from that mountain, it went into the desert, the Judean desert. And from the Judean desert, it ascended. Uh, and this is what Yechezkel sees right at the beginning of this book. It, it ascended from the desert, the uh, Judean desert, and rested in its place in, in Shemayim, in heaven, completely isolated from the physical world and the human race. And the Gemara continues that uh, Rabbi Yochanan says for six months, this process took six months. And when the God got to his final, the penultimate destination, which was the desert, the Judean desert, God's presence lingered there. Um, waiting, waiting, hoping that the Jewish people would repent and he, God, would be able to return to his place in the base of Middosh when they didn't repent. The divine presence said, let them despair and be lost, as the book of Eog describes, the eyes of the wicked will fail, and they will have nowhere to flee, and their hope will turn into intense grief. So that is uh, the first part of this verse, describing the fact that at this point in time, well, when Yechezkel sees through this allegorical imagery, um, 
these angels coming into the base of Migdosh and standing either in front of the base of Migdosh or inside the base of Migdosh. It's at that point in five years hence that God, so to speak, picks up and starts to leave. And there are 10 journeys. And uh, the Ben Yoda here, he's got a lot to say about God journeying out and taking six months to uh, travel up to heaven. So uh, he's got an esoteric take on this. It's quite important to us to understand what Yechezkel is seeing. Because Yechezkel does not see all 10 journeys, all 10 of God's movements, so to speak, away from Yerushalayim. He only sees a few of them, as we'll see in the coming chapters. But the uh, Ben Yoda, the Ben Ishchai, he's got a lot to say. Well, not a lot to say. He's got quite a bit to say on this Gemara about the ten journeys. Esamasos nosos shchina. The from the from the from its resting place above the Ark of the Covenant on the Kruvim, on the uh, Kaporas and uh, uh, and the Kruvim, God's uh, presence moved, took ten journeys. Nirali, b'siyata dishmaya. Says the Benish Chai appears to me with the help of heaven. The reason why God took 10 journeys, it could have gone straight up to heaven. He didn't need to hang around Yerushalayim. The reason why God took 10, uh, so to speak, diversions on his way out of Yerushalayim is Chas Al Ha'olam. He had pity. He still hoped that there was Chus. He still hoped there was some type of um value to the world he was leaving behind. Uh the world Shinivro Basorama Moros, a world he created with ten expressions, which is uh what we say in Pirkeavos, Ulochain Osa Hamasa Bahadrogos de Cholkula Sora. So God who who created the physical world with ten utterances leaves the physical world in ten journeys. Ulai Yoshua bain time velotis tarech lisa od, hoping against hope that the, in the meantime the people would do teshuva, the Jewish people would do, do teshuva, and he would not have to leave completely after all. Gam says the Ben It also appears to me again with the help of heaven. Tam acher, another reason why God, so to speak. Uh, is described as leaving Yerushalayim in 10, ten uh, journeys, 10 uh, pieces of his uh, departure. He says, he quotes the Potsuk from Echa, from the Book of Lamentations, which the first verse describes the status of Yerushalayim. Echa Yoshva Vodot. Um, the chapter Echa, the Book of Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 1. We translate those words, Echo Yoshva Vodot. How is it that the city of Yerushalayim, that was once so populous, became Bodot, so lonely, so alone? But says the Benish Chai on a more Kabbalistic level, wrote Saloma, the way you should translate this verse, Echo Yoshva Vodot, Ech Hashem, how could God, Sod Or Hashchino, whose presence is the secret, and light and the foundation of all creation, Yoshva Vodot, possibly sit alone. In other words, the, the whole world relies on God's input. 
The whole of creation relies on God's input. How could it be that God could leave the temple? Eich Hashem, Eich, Eich, Eicha, meaning Eich Hashem. How is it possible for God? She he sowed or Hashkina, uh, who, who, whose presence is the secret, the secret light, the secret foundation of all creation. Yoshva Badod, possibly sit alone. And uh, says the Ben Ishchai, Gematria Eser, Ki Eser Yeshivas Yesh Boba Eser Masosa Eilu. And the answer is that the word Bodod, Echa Yoshva Bodod, has a Gematria of 10, referring to the 10 journeys, the 10, so to speak, um, stages at which God's presence traveled, was weakened until it was completely lost from the physical world. From the environs of the base of Migdosh, Yerushalayim, and finally the land of Israel, and finally the world, well, then the land of Israel and the whole world. It had to happen in stages because the world couldn't survive, so to speak, God's presence leaving it bodod alone in one, in one go. It had to be in 10 stages. And, uh, which is, uh, interesting approach. You, um, you don't see the word that, 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 Sentence in Echo being translated that way. That's, uh, I mean, I don't know where he gets it from. He doesn't, he doesn't give the source. I'm, I'll try to find it, but Echo, Ech Hashem, Yoshvavadot. How is it possible for God to sit Bodot alone, um, without interacting with the world? Okay. So, and then he comments on this, this idea that, uh, six months that God rested in the desert, hoping. He's, and he quotes the Gemara, he says, The Gemara said that, uh, we just learned before, that for six, six months, um, uh, God's presence stayed in the desert, hoping before he finally left the physical world, uh, waiting for the Jewish people, hoping against hope that they would do Teshuvah and God could return, says the Ben Ishchai. One second. He says, Kosav HaMarshah, he quotes the Marshah. Kosav, yeah, Kosav HaMarshah, he quotes the Marshah, uh, one of the uh, early Achroim, Zichron Lerocha, Di'ilu HaShisha Chodoshim Heimiyom Asara Batavis at Tisha Batamas. Those six months that are being described here in this Gomorrah, where God, so to speak, waited in, in the desert, they were the days from Asura Bateves, which we've just had, which was the day that the uh, Babylonians first broke through the walls of the city. The, the walls of Yushalayim were breached. They, we just had the fast, Asura Bateves. Those six months started on Asura Bateves, Ad Tisha until the ninth of Tamas, Tamas, when the destruction of Yerushalayim began in earnest. That, that was the six months. Um, God waited for some type of message, some type of tshuva, but it never came. And um, when it didn't come, God's presence finally left the physical world. And what we were left with was a shell. Yushalayim just became a physical shell that the Babylonians poured into and utterly destroyed, killing everybody who hadn't been killed by famine and plague. Obviously, some people got away, but nearly a million people were murdered. And so before we go on, I just want to just reiterate, it's important to recognize 
that God leaving the confines of the base of Middosh in 10 separate journeys, as the Gomorrah describes, was a great chesed to the Jews of Yushalayim. Because whilst God's presence resided there, the base of Middosh was indestructible, as you can imagine. If God's presence is inside a building, the building itself becomes indestructible. Um, and so that the devastation that would follow would not have affected the base of Migdosh. In other words, if God's presence would have stayed in the base of Migdosh while the Babylonians were in town, the Babylonians wouldn't have been able to get near the base of Migdosh. And the fury and anger and destruction would have been solely focused on the people of Yerushalayim, meaning that although hundreds of thousands of people died when the Babylonians broke through into Yerushalayim, the de- devastation would have been much greater had they been unable to destroy the base of Migdosh. Um, and uh, as a result of God's presence still being there. So the devastation that was felt, which was terrible. I mean, in total, again, over 940, Gomorrah seems to imply 947,000 people were killed in the Babylonian destruction of Yehuda and Yerushalayim. But of course, 2 million people went into in, into exile. Um, and what the, uh, what many commentators say here is God leaving was a big chesed because the devastation, uh, that took place, although terrible, was mitigated by God leaving the base of Migdash, leaving, leaving it as just a collection of wood and stone and allowing the Babylonians to take out some of their fury on the temple, uh, that they would had circumstances been different taken out on the people. So the base of Migdosh, which is now, which would be soon when God let left, uh, just a, uh, a, a stone and wooden monument, a buffer, provided a buffer for the people of Yehudi and Yerushalayim. God allowed and even orchestrated his house to be destroyed in order to mitigate the suffering of the masses. So that's the first part of this verse. The first part of this verse deals with God, so to speak, taking his first uh, baby steps, if you like, in his leaving of the base of Migdosh. And again, this is Yechezkel is seeing this. It's something that's not happened yet. It's five years away. And he's seeing it as part of an allegorical um, animation, so to speak. And uh, the final part of this verse is God speaking to the angel that's clothed in the white linen. The one possible According, certainly according to the Barbanel, the one possible character in this allegory that might actually have been there when the base of Migdash would, w- was going to be destroyed five years hence, which is either Gabriel, the angel dressed in white linen, or according to Rabbeinu Bachai, the angel Michal. The angel Michal is the guardian of Israel. He was forced to watch this, maybe. I don't know. We're not sure. No one's sure. Uh, we're dealing here with allegory, so it's very, very hard to um, put everything together. But finally, the final thing that happens in this verse is God speaks um, to the angel clothed in white linen, uh, which creates a segue from verse 3 to verse 4. habadim. God called out to the man. This is the end of verse 3. habadim. God called out to the man clothed in white linen, Asher Kesas herself of Bamosnov, who had the ledger, um, the scribe's ledger in his belt, 
Uh, and as we discussed earlier, this individual is either Gavriel, um, who was there as part of the destructive group of angels, if that's what you believe, or to foreshadow uh, the Babylonian destruction, which is going to take him five years' time. He's either, and again, his job is either to record the destructive events that would be unfolding and or to ensure that the guilty inhabitants of Yerushalayim were rounded up and killed. That's what the Medrash says. Or Gavriel's job, as the Radak says, uh, he was there to ensure that fire was used. He's a Malach of fire. He was there to ensure that the base of Migdash would be set aflame. Alternatively, this was Michael, the angel of Israel, as in acting as a sort of celestial Kohen Godol, ensuring only the guilty suffered and the innocents would be saved, which is, again, the opinion, opinion of Rabbeinu Bachai. And finally, the Abarbanel's opinion, who earlier described the seven, seven angels as representing six, six types of sin, responsible for the destruction of Yehuda uh, and Yerushalayim and the Bosomidosh, and the man dressed in white linen represented the purity of the destroyers. Um, how did Yechezkel perceive them? So here, how did Yechezkel perceive them? So here, the Barbanel, before we move into verse 4, have we got time for this? No, we'll deal with this, please God. I think we'll stop there. We'll deal with it. It's enough for today. Um, so, yeah. The Barb- something the Barbanel didn't discuss before when he described these six men as being six representatives of the six types of sin. The to, uh, from above, from below, from the right, from the left, from the front, from the back, all the six types of sins. He told you what they were, what the angels represented. He didn't tell you how Yecheskel pr- perceived them. And uh, now at this point uh, of the story, the Abavanel tells you exactly how he perceives them. Um, which we we don't have time to, which is very interesting, actually. This is how Yechezkel saw the angels. He didn't see them as angels. He saw them as something else, as representatives of the particular sins of the uh, people of Yerushalayim. And uh, I don't know where the Abarbanel gets this from, but he describes um, how Yechezkel saw them, what what he actually saw in his image, in his imagination, what was going on in his head, when he saw these six angels, who did he see? Who did he recognize? So that is something we will have to deal with next week. Please, God, uh, as we finish this verse and we move on to the segments as a segue. Uh, I wish I could get to verse four, but we'll run out of time. Um, we're almost there because uh, verse four is where everything starts to go uh, a little bit sideways and uh, becomes very difficult to understand. Um, okay, so that's where we are. We're right at the end of our discussion of verse three, almost at the end. All we need to really look at now is the six angels. How did Yechezko perceive them himself? Did he recognize anybody? And maybe that's the reason why he never made any objection as well, because maybe he recognized some of the angels that were coming into Yerushalayim. Maybe he knew some of them. So this is something that the Abarbanel talks about, and we'll discuss that next week, please, God. Um, in the meantime, 
we'll call time. Uh, unusual for us. We're actually finishing on time. Um, if anybody's got any, we got time for questions. If anybody's got any questions, uh, now's the time. The great thing about your festivals, people don't have questions. People are like, oh my God, if I ask a question on this, what, what, what the heck's going on? Larry Lawrence, you got no questions. Everything makes sense. It all makes sense to you, does it? It's all like, uh, these things happen all every day. You know, you have a dream, six destructive angels coming into Yerushalayim, having a chat with God. And, uh, you know, and you got no, 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 it's normal. This is, this happens every day, right? Harvey Farby, you got nothing to say. I had a dream. I had a dream. Yeah. That's Martin Luther King day today. He had a dream as well, but not like this. I don't think he had a dream like this. No. Okay. Okay. Harry, Harry, you said something about destruction coming from the right. I don't remember now. I didn't, I can't see the notes, but doesn't usually destruction, destruction come from the left. No, destruction comes no, from the right. You mean Hashem, Osachoyal, you mean Hashem, Tiratoyev. Always from the right. Does he talk about you coming from the north? Yeah, I mentioned that. No, the, uh, the, the, the destroyers come from the north. Oh. Remember, this is allegory. And this is all allegory. And we have to understand that. Because yeah. the, the base of Mikdash is not going to be destroyed for another five years. So Yechezkel isn't going to be seeing, you know, 25,000 Babylonian soldiers pouring inside Yerushalayim and killing everybody. What he's going to see is he's going to see these angels or whatever they are doing the killing. And that's going to be a an allegory to what the Babylonians are going to do in five years' time. And then we'll see his reaction to that when that actually takes place later on in the chapter. Um, okay. If, if that's uh, all you've got to say, if that's what, no, nobody's got anything to say. We lost the Americans today. Gee whiz, our American cousins. You, uh, Martin, Martin Luther King Day. Lower Lane. Okay. Harry, Harry, did you see my comment? Uh, the, the copper altar. So I've seen in the first batch of chapter where an altar is mentioned inferring this was made by the sun worshippers. Yeah, I've seen that, but that's, uh, that's not a, not a Jewish source. That doesn't come from a Jewish source, which is typical of Sonsino. Um, no, I, I quoted you the Gemara. The Gemara says there's no such thing. There's no, there's no copper altar. There was never a, there was never a copper altar in the base of Middash ever. Um, so, um, there was no copper altar built by the pagans or anything. Nothing. No. Uh, Okay. Okay. Okay, guys. Same time, same place next week. Please, God, have a great week. And hopefully we'll have our American, our uh, international, the international people back next week. Call to everybody. Have a great week. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.